Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mike Friedenberg, and welcome to World News Brief. I've got to laugh. This is actually my third attempt to do this high-level military-slash-political summary of what's really happening in Ukraine. But you know what they say, the third time is the charm. The other, other efforts went too long. So uh, without further to-do, I'm gonna go ahead and get rolling here. I will say this is that at a very high level, what you've been reading, most likely reading, you know, on your, uh, your news sites, in the newspapers, wherever you get your, your media, unless you really work hard to get alternative media, what you've been hearing is false. Russia is not about ready to fall apart. Russia does not have a manpower problem. Russia doesn't have an ammunition problem. Russia doesn't have a tank problem. On the other hand, Ukraine is in dire straits when it comes to manpower. Ukraine is in dire straits when it comes to ammunition. And Ukraine, though it has received lots and lots of equipment from NATO, some of that equipment does not work, and much of that equipment has already been destroyed by Russian strikes. So contrary to what you're hearing, Ukraine is in a very poor position to start an offensive. And that, that is partially because over the last six months, and in particular during the winter, where Russia has been running a very successful winter offensive. Now, the winter offensive that Russia has been running has not been about gaining territory. It's been about degrading the Ukraine military. Degrading meaning a euphemism for killing Ukrainian soldiers and wounding them and destroying equipment, in particular air defense systems. And in this regard, Russia has been very, very successful. Unfortunately, the leadership in Ukraine is not very good. Zelensky, former actor who did play a president on television, has nowhere near the experience, the, uh, the toughness, and the mental acuity of Russia's Vladimir Putin. And of course, he's not his own man. He's at the beck and call of NATO and the United States. And consequently, I believe that he's been putting policy into place that does not benefit the Ukrainian people. In fact, has been horrendous for the Ukrainian people. But before I delve into this topic more deeply, I do want to give a very, very quick whirlwind overview of how the war started. And at this point, it's worth remembering the purpose for NATO was to contain the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union has been gone since the early 1990s when it dissolved. So why is NATO continuing to expand and expand toward Russia? Well, that's what the Russian people have been asking themselves. And NATO and the United States have certainly given them cause to be concerned. CIA has continued to work against Russia, to undermine Russia, to try to weaken Russia. NATO and United States and the CIA have been involved with the former Soviet countries working to put governments hostile to Russia in place. And unfortunately for Russia, for many years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they were not really in a position to fight back. There was a period of 10, 12 years where you had the Russian Navy rusting away, 
Russian officers and enlisted people not getting paid, complete economic collapse, the banking system collapsed. Then came along Putin in 1999, and he was probably the single most important person to getting Russia back on its feet. A number of reforms that got their banking system back in place, that got their reserves back in place. Putin, around 2008, really starts to make very, very strong protestations against former Soviet bloc countries joining NATO, in particular, former Soviet bloc countries that are right on Russia's border. And the biggest of those countries is Ukraine. Ukraine shares a 1,200-mile border with Russia. We have a different perspective on NATO than Russia has. That, that's understandable. And we could debate whose view of NATO is more accurate, but what really matters is the Russian people's and their leaders' perception of NATO, and their perception of NATO is that it's not a friendly purveyor of peace. They don't want NATO troops along the, their 1,200-mile border with Ukraine. They don't want NATO missiles there, and they've made that very, very clear. They've also made it very clear We'd be very happy to have a neutral government like you have in Austria. However, NATO and the United States didn't really care about Russia's, Russia's protestations, and they continued to push forward. They had people working in Ukraine, the CIA, spending billions of dollars to try to influence politics there. You should know that there was two main parties there. There was the Party of Regions, a party that says, hey, let's... Let's have a, a country, maybe sort of like Canada. We can have a separate Russian language areas celebrating Russian culture. You can have Ukrainian areas celebrating Ukrainian culture and using the Ukrainian language. That was what the party region stood for. The Nationalist Party stood for, hey, there's going to be one language. It's going to be Ukrainian-dominated culture. And that party, by the way, was heavily infiltrated and influenced by neo-Nazis. So, yes. And by the way, to this day, neo-Nazis maintain very influential positions of power within the Ukrainian government. So this is going on. There's back and forth. There's an election in 2010. This is monitored by international observers. And the party of regions manages to eke out a, a pretty very narrow win. Two points. A vast majority of the votes for that party, the party of regions coming from eastern Ukraine, the areas that you may have been hearing about, the Donbass region, Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea, Crimea voted 70% for the party of regions. The Luhansk and Donetsk regions were about 88%, 90%. So they really wanted this, the solution of, of having their culture and their language respected. The nationalists were furious that they had lost, of course, and so was the CIA and the United States because they had been back in the nationalists. So, you know, 2010, you have a, a democratically elected government put in place, and from that point in time, you have the United States and CIA working against that democratically elected government. This culminates in 2014 where there's a violent revolution. The CIA and the United States put in place the nationalist government Eventually, we have Zelensky coming to run in there, but before that, we had um, Poroshenko, who was a figurehead, 
But the nationalists are running things. There's the Minsk agreements, which are supposed to put in place respect for the language, the Russian language and the Russian culture. Those are violated by the nationalist government. Luhansk area, Donetsk areas have had enough. The democratically elected president they voted for has been violently overthrown. They're, they're still being treated as a second and third class citizens. The Azov regions, which is neo-Nazis, is committing acts of terror against their people. They decide to break away. Russia annexes Crimea, by the way, largely, very favorably <laughs> viewed by the people of Crimea because they did not want to be anymore under the control of what was a very bigoted group of people that took over the power in Ukraine. These are the folks, these are the extreme nationalists. These are the neo-Nazis. These are the people who were very adamant that we're not going to respect the Russian language and the Russian culture and the Russian people. So from late 2014 up through the beginning of 2022, we had what is essentially a civil war going on with the separatists of Luhansk and Donetsk fighting it out with um, the armed forces of Ukraine. The armed forces of Ukraine are shelling the uh, separatist regions, killing civilians. Some 14,000 deaths occurred during this period of time. Not all of them civilians, but many, many thousands of them were your civilians. This was going on, so, you know, hey, don't... <laughs> A lot of war crimes committed in this period of time by the Ukrainian armed forces. Turns out that there was, they did not adhere to what was called the Minsk agreements, and some analysts, including myself, think that the Minsk agreements, there was never really any serious intent to follow the provisions of the Minsk agreements. Instead, that period of time that was uh, where the Minsk agreements were supposedly trying to be followed with all sorts of violations going on, this was giving the uh, NATO and United States time to build up the Ukrainian military, massive buildup, Western training, hundreds and hundreds of U.S. trainers in Ukraine training the troops. So by the time you get to late to 2021, early 2022, there's something like 120,000 Ukrainian troops right on the border of the separatist region. That's the Russian-speaking Russian culture part of Ukraine, ready to come in forcibly and wipe out the separatists. So 120,000 versus maybe 40,000 separatists. Russia sees this and realizes that, well, they realize it before this, but they see it and they say, hey, clearly NATO and the United States don't give a hoot about what we're saying, but maybe they'll care if we do something. And plus, we, we want to do a preemptive strike to prevent the attack on you know, the Russian language, Russian culture people of Eastern Ukraine. So they, they launched their, their invasion of Ukraine. In the, and that's the context there. They were hoping that with this seriousness of the invasion bearing down on Kiev, and they did have a plan potentially to take Kiev in the 10 days, that NATO and, and the United States, through their proxies in Ukraine, would be willing to negotiate. But it turned out Russia horribly miscalculated. They miscalculated on the willingness to be reasonable on this whole thing, and they miscalculated on the effectiveness of the Ukrainian forces, which were well-trained and well-motivated and really don't like Russians. 
bottom line is they didn't have the forces. They were badly outnumbered. They, rather than trying to, to hold ground that wasn't that important to them, they retreated back into the Donbass region and set up defensive perimeters that you have seen in place now for roughly since October. And that gets us to where we are today, where there's been a lot of talk about there being a counteroffensive. You've been hearing about it for months. But you also probably in the last week or so have been hearing President Zelensky saying, well, maybe we don't have enough troops. Maybe we're not quite ready. Maybe the equipment is not quite enough. We need some more time. There have been a number of skirmishes along that border, mostly this is mostly in the Donbass region. One of the things I do want to say right now is you're certainly welcome to look at every little skirmish, look at every block they take in Bakhmut, you know, look at the 100 yards that's taken here, the kilometer that's taken there, and then the, the, the counterattack there. But the big picture is Ukraine is badly outnumbered. You know, starting with the 100, 150,000 troops that Russia put along the border to hold the Ukraine in place during the winter months, you have another couple hundred thousand that were there, you know, in reserve there. Meanwhile, there was another 300,000 that were being trained starting in September. Those forces are now ready to come online. And then and there's another 400,000 that are in the process of being recruited and trained. So, but roughly right now, 700 to 800,000 Russian forces are opposing maybe uh, 150, 180 poorly. Well, there's some well-trained Ukrainian forces, but a lot of them are really poorly trained. And that's the situation. Russia outnumbers the Ukrainians hugely in terms of manpower. They outnumber them in terms of tanks. They outnumber them in terms of air power. They badly outnumber them in terms of artillery. And that's one of the key things to talk about here. During the winter months, Russia was enjoying something in the vicinity of a 10 to 1 advantage in artillery. This was up and down the entire defensive line, you know, whatever, 1,200 miles of it. But in, we saw this come into play in Bakhmut. A number of analysts, people that I respect their opinion of, a particular Colonel um, Douglas McGregor is one of them. You can find him online. You can find him in print. You can read his stuff and hear his stuff and assess his credibility on your own. But this is a, a person that served uh, our military, was, in, was one of the key commanders in the Battle of 73 Easting. He's written five books that have been very influential in military policy for the United States. So there's others. Lots of reading, um, Western sources, non-Western sources. But I'm going to say that the Bakhmut was intentionally set up by Russia to be a killing zone. Unfortunately for Ukraine, Zelensky, who is 100% dependent upon the billions of dollars we're sending in financial aid, you know, his government's being, being run off of strictly money, most of the money from the United States, to pay the government salaries, to pay their pensions. He believed that he could not lose territory. So Ukrainian men, tens of thousands of them, have been fighting in the Bakhmut area to try to stop Russia from taking it. 
Russia, for for its case, yeah, does want to take Bakhmut, but over the last three or four months was in no hurry because as long as the Ukraine was flowing men and material into Bakhmut, they could sit there and hammer those men and materials with a 10 to 1 artillery advantage. And that's what happened. So probably into the tens of thousands of deaths and hundreds of thousands of casualties. And that's just Bakhmut. So you can add many, many thousands of deaths and devastating casualties that Ukraine took during Russia's winter offensive. Meanwhile, Russia was training its troops, destroying Ukrainian equipment, particularly air defense equipment, in preparation for its own offensive, and also to be ready to slice apart and destroy any kind of counteroffensive that Ukraine could mount. That's the realistic situation there. Russia is not on the verge of collapsing. Russia soldiers are not incompetent, bumbling fools, you know, drinking vodka and you know, stumbling into minefields. Now, the Ukrainian soldiers, especially at the beginning of the war, very well trained. Unfortunately, during this last four or five months, many of the experienced soldiers have been killed or wounded so seriously they're not going to make it back into the battle. The majority of Ukrainian forces are not very well trained. They do have 40,000 or so forces that are pretty well trained. They were been trained for the last few months in NATO countries. That's not going to be enough to take on a vastly superior, vastly better equipped Russian army. This talk about uh, Western tanks is silliness. A couple hundred Western tanks that may or may not be properly supported aren't going to make a difference. A handful of HIMARS, three or 20 or 30 HIMARS is not going to make a difference. Even the new shadow missiles that England has provided to Ukraine, these very long-range cruise missiles, which are certainly going to make Russia more angry and they're going to cause some damage, is not going to make a difference in the long run. Basically, it's already been decided. Ukraine is going to lose this war with Russia. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's nothing the United States or NATO can do about it short of actually committing masses of troops to actually come in and fight alongside the Ukrainians. That's pretty much it. So the question becomes is, with all this equipment and a fresh supply of men that they've managed to train up, ranging from barely poorly trained to quite well trained, what should Ukraine do now? Well, I think what Ukraine should do right now is say, hey, we have all these men, we have this equipment, and if you're going to try to take over Ukraine, we're going to fight you tooth and nail, and, and it's going to cost you a lot of men and material to do so. So let's talk about a negotiated peace. That's what Ukraine should be doing right now. And when they talk about the negotiated peace, they're going to have to accept the bitter pill, a very bitter pill, that the Donbass region, no way is that coming back in their Ukrainian control. The people of Donbass do not want to be under control of the nationalist government, the anti-Russian anti bigoted nationalist government that's treated them so poorly over a period of decades. They're not coming back in to Ukraine, and neither is the Crimea for, for similar reasons but also because Russia considers it very strategic and they're not going to give it up. 
There should be a serious effort to negotiate now. If Ukraine tries to launch a counteroffensive under NATO-US pressure, I mean, the Russians will probably be willing to let the counteroffensive penetrate in to pass the current lines so that they can come in from all sides, envelop it, and destroy it. And once that happens, Ukraine is completely laid bare. Any negotiating power they have is gone. What I think is going to really happen is I think I think that the Ukrainian commanders are smart enough to know that trying to launch a major offensive deep into the Donbass region would be a complete disaster. What they may try to do is, you know, is launch lots of little small counterattacks up and down the, uh, the, you know, the border between the Russian and the Ukrainian forces, make little gains here, build up what little gains they make in the media, and try to continue doing the battle that way. However, Russia won't stand for that very long. Once Russia realizes that Ukraine's not going to try to mount a major counteroffensive, Russia's going to start pushing. It's going to bring in overwhelming manpower, overwhelming artillery support, are going to be able to use their air superiority, and they're going to start pushing. And they're going to take back the Kharkiv region. They may go further than that, but they're going to take some territory. And at some point in time, they're going to take enough territory, and they're going to have killed enough Ukrainians and destroyed enough equipment, and they're going to stop and say, okay, now do you want to negotiate? And our terms are that just forget about the Donbass region, forget about Crimea, and you need to agree to be neutral. You need to agree right now you're not going to be joining NATO. At that point of time, Ukraine will have lost probably most of its trained troops. It will have lost much of the equipment NATO has given to it. And it will be faced with accepting those terms or basically having Kiev taken and they're no longer being a Ukraine. Now, that, they're basically in that same situation right now. They could get the same deal right now, except the only difference will be is they'll have lost tens of thousands more people six months from now, have less equipment, and, and they'll have you know, a far more devastated economy. More of their infrastructure will be gone. So why would they want to do this? Why would the United States and NATO put the Ukrainian people through this? It, it's, it's beyond me. It's unconscionable what we're doing to the Ukrainian people right now. It reminds me of lines from a well-known Pink Floyd song, Us and Them. Forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. The general sat and the lines on the map moved from side to side. So we have our policy people. We have our people in political office looking at maps and the lines do move from side to side. The problem is, Every time that line moves, that represents 100 deaths, 300 wounded, or maybe 1,000 deaths on a, on a big battle. And they just sit here and they look at these lines and we've just completely dehumanized this whole horrible war into abstract goals of, for some reason, that we desperately need to weaken Russia. Now, Russia is not a threat to attack NATO, as I've told you NATO has many times the number of troops, and if NATO was threatened, 
and they felt their existence, these countries in NATO felt their, their country's existence was threatened, they could put together overwhelming force. But right now, they don't feel that way. That's why they're not, their, economy, their economies are not a wartime economy, running wartime economy 724, desperately building military materials like Russia is. is. They're not doing that. This is basically just the Ukrainian people being used to fight a war. Literally, apparently, we're going to you know, fight the war to the last Ukrainian. This is disgusting. The fact that they lost the territory there in Donbass and Crimea is 100% the fault of the United States and NATO. If they had got behind a government that was more moderate, a government that was willing to respect the rights of the historically Russian peoples of Ukraine, respect their language, respect their culture, there would not have been a civil war, they would not have broken off, and Russia would not have interceded. I really believe this. That's, that's how I see things. Ukraine's not going to win this war. The question is, are there going to be tens of thousands more deaths on, on the Ukrainian side? and many more thousands deaths on the Russian side as well. Yes, they're going, to, they're going to win the ratio of death battle, whether it's three to one Ukrainian deaths through one Russian, or two to one, or four to one. There's going to be quite a few Russian deaths as well because the Ukrainians are fighting bravely. They're fighting tough. They're, they're, being t they're fighting tenaciously, but they're going to be overwhelmed and the experienced troops they have right now are going to be beaten down and destroyed in a matter of months, no matter what. And then there's going to be nothing left be between the Russian lines and Kiev. I do believe that Russia will give Ukraine another chance to come to an agreement, but it's going to be the same agreement they could get right now, except that their country will be poorer, There'll have been more young men, well, not just young men, because they're, they're grabbing 50 and 60-year-olds off the street to shove them into the front lines. So let's get a peace agreement done right now, and let's stop listening and reading this ridiculous propaganda. And it is propaganda we are getting in our news sources. Russia's not anywhere near collapsing. Russia doesn't have an ammunition shortage. Russia, you know, they did lose a lot of tanks, but they've still got a lot more tanks and they're going to be used much more effectively than they were when they were, you know, retreating from a, a mistake on their part. It's a big mistake, a mistake in terms of how well-equipped and well-prepared well prepared and trained the Ukrainians were, and also just how stubborn the policymakers in the United States and NATO were in in pushing their anti-Russian agenda. We will see if I'm right on this. I believe I'm right, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this podcast. If you want more details in, on how this whole war started, the previous podcast does go into detail, more detail on the origins. It's 30 minutes, that's obviously not enough to cover all the complexities. I do have some links in that podcast that will describe some of the things I talk about there. And I'm going to put some links into below in this podcast as well to give you more of a background on this. Anyway, I just uh, really do feel 
a tremendous sadness about what's been done to the Ukrainian people. And that's why I'm doing these podcasts. Pray for the Ukrainian people. And I also do pray for, you know, those Russian soldiers who are going to be dying too. Needlessly. Absolutely needlessly. So with this uh, sad (laughs) segment, uh, Mac brings us to the end of this podcast. And as always, till next time, live long and prosper.